This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I am joined by Will Bushman. Hi there, Sam. We are jumping into episode five of our 10-part series entitled, How Did We Get Here? And so, just to recap, episode one, we talked about education and, and the earliest days and how it was so rich with Christianity how the universities came along, and how ideas for literacy came out of the Reformation. But we also started with this premise that you had these two great trains that came out of Catholicism, which used to dominate all of Europe. They dominated the monarchies, and they dominated the fabrics of social society. So their interpretations of the Bible came to to be the moral law of the time, and they more or less had control of the monarchies, which left very little room for philosophic debates, discussions, dissensions. I mean, they had kind of an ironclad hold on that. And in the early 1500s, you had these two trains that splintered off from the Roman Catholic track, and that was Luther that was saying, no, 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 we need to get more purist. We need to get back to the original models of the early church where we're looking only at the authority of the, of the written word of the apostles in the Old Testament, sola scriptura. We're getting rid of man-made traditions, and it was very much trying to recapture the spirit of the very early church, right? Well, that generated this great interest in literacy and everything else, uh, that we talked about in our first couple of episodes. But on the other side of that, you had Machiavelli who said, you know what, this whole idea of God is ridiculous. There is no God. You need to, you know, the ends justify the means. If you want something, you go grab it. Morality has no role in determining politics. You go get what you want. And so you saw a flurry of uh, Enlightenment philosophers that came after him that, you know, he Machiavelli was considered the father of modern political philosophy, and by the way, the Catholic Church called him Old Nick. He, they nicknamed him Satan, you know, <laughs> and he was he was he was a rough pill to swallow. But you had all these philosophers that came out of those two that were directing people in different paths. And today, we're coming up with somebody who was a scientist but had massive implications uh, and and influence in the realm of philosophic ideas. And that's what we're going to focus on today in our discussion of Charles Darwin. We are not getting into the science of it. We are getting into the philosophic and moral implications of it. Uh, I'd be happy to do another podcast where we get into that, but that's not going to be today. So starting off, do you remember 1840s? The common school movement is starting to, to ramp up. Public schools are, are becoming more the norm. In the 1860s, we have the land grants. And slowly but surely, or actually pretty rapidly and surely, public education is overtaking private education in the United States. And at that point, universal agreement and what the founding principles were, Christianity was the, the dominant worldview, and everybody embraced that. And then you have a bombshell that comes in 1859 when Charles Darwin publishes On the Origin of Species. You ever read it? Nope. 
I know, honestly, probably nothing about Charles Darwin, so I'm excited for this journey. Okay, cool. Well, this is not going to be a complete picture of Charles Darwin, but we're going to hit kind of the important notes that help you understand how his ideas shaped culture, probably and almost assuredly, in ways that he could not have envisioned. It was like he he came up with this idea, and then he couldn't control the monsters that his idea subsequently influenced. And so Darwin... Uh, 1859 writes on the origin of the species. And in that book, if you've, if you've ever read it, it's a, it's a rough read because he's talking about all kinds of creatures and observations. And, you know, it, when you're reading it, it does it. It's not like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is just fascinating page turner. He's writing about how the struggle for existence is forcing creatures to compete for survival. And he talks about how adaptations and, and advantageous variations served and enabled some creatures to survive and propagate their genetics. And so the idea was, if that continues long enough, it emerges eventually in a brand new species. In other words, you know, take, take an example of, you know, two birds and this is this is i'm simplifying and changing one of his examples but if you have two birds and one has a blunt beak and the other one has a long beak and the only way to get food is to be able to to drill deep into a tree which of those two birds is going to survive long beak the long beak and so the long beak is going to be the only one who propagates the species until eventually all the birds have long beaks and maybe even longer beaks and so then eventually if that goes long enough you get you know a variation so different from the original group of birds that it might be considered new species. And so that was a pretty common view at the time. And so what Darwin comes along and on origin of the species. On the origin of species by the way was nowhere near as controversial as his second book that we'll talk about in a moment. But what he's saying is if a particular trait makes a creature more adept to survive that trait is obviously going to become the dominant trait in the species. And if that continues long enough over time, you get new species, the advancements of the species uh, out of that to where entire species are changing into new things given enough time. So, but these ideas are not new. Like Darwin didn't come up with that idea. Did you know that? No, this is like a family affair because Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin wrote Zoonomia in 1794, contending that all creatures had a common ancestor. So this is something that Darwin has been hearing from dear old grandpa his whole life. He's heard these theories. He's, he believes that this is the way the world works. So when he goes on his voyage in the Beagle and starts visiting islands, guess what? He's already got this idea in his head. It's not like he's you know going around going, oh, got a brand new idea. The world needs to hear this. He's going with a... Uh, with a <laughs> preconceived notion thank you a preconceived notion that he's looking to fulfill and so he writes that book and it generates a, a fair amount of controversy even though most people are like you know that's not a big deal most people didn't didn't budge at it at all but this was the controversial idea and he never mentions human evolution in the first book huh he says you know, a species can undergo a long train of variations and adaptations to where a new species emerges. And so in that first book, he focuses on, you know, plants, birds, you know, mammals. But I think he chooses not to address human evolution. Instead, like when, in fact, when he finished writing on the origin of species in the book, he wrote that this should not shock the religious views of anyone. 
Like that's, that's his stance when he writes this book. In fact, listen to the final lines of the book. So if you, if you were to open up a copy of Darwin's origin of species and you go to the very last sentence of the book, this is what you would read. There is a grandeur in this view of life with its several powers, having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or into one. Now, let me just, what has he just said there? That there's a creator. That there's a common ancestor. So, okay, he may have created a few or one that then emerged and became all this life. But notice what he says, having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or into one. So Darwin is going over, bending over, like he doesn't believe this, by the way. Like he's, by this point, I I think he's walked away from his faith. He was a Unitarian when he was a kid. When he was going to school, he was actually supposed to be a physician. And he told his dad, like, I'm, you know, his sisters told his dad, I'm just not interested in being a physician. And so dad was like, well, what do you think about being a pastor? And he was like, hmm, let me think about it. And he went and read on it. And he was like, this sounds great. I want to be a clergyman. And so he goes to Cambridge to be a pastor and eventually ends up walking away from it. And like, and, and his autobiography is like, how in the world did I ever become <laughs> anywhere near close to becoming a pastor because he had walked away from any sort of religiosity uh, at all. But in this book, you know, he acknowledges these creatures having been breathed by the creator. And, and he goes on and he says, and that while this planet has gone circling on according to the fixed law of gravity from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. In other words, through these advantageous variations you have the evolution of these creatures becoming new species that's what darwin taught so the first book comes out some people are upset but by and large not it it was it was very fascinating and it was tremendously influential uh, but the real controversy i think came in 1871 when he publishes his next major work called the descent of man you heard of that one? Never. So in this book, Darwin, who had spent most of you know the first book talking about plants and birds and, and mammals, now just lasers in and he says, okay, let's, let's focus on where man came from. And so he made it clear that he believed that the races of mankind shared a common ancestor with primates. And notice, so there's a, there's a big misconception in, in saying you know, Darwin taught that we came from monkeys. Uh, kind of, but there's a little nuance. What he says is not necessarily that we came from the ape. He's saying we have the same ancestor as the ape. So from some common ancestor, evolution took place, and then man came from the same ancestor that the baboon and the chimpanzee. And But then he gets tremendously, tremendously racist in, in what, he, what he says. Now, he's looking... And the reason why he says we have a common ancestor is he says, you know, man bears in his bodily structure clear traces of his descent from some lower form. And he wrote, he talked about how early humans must have originated in Africa because Africa was formerly inhabited by extinct apes closely allied to the gorilla and the chimpanzee. And as these two species are now man's nearest allies, so we must have come from there. And so, Am I, am I making myself clear? Yeah. Like, so as we're going to see a little bit later on, Darwin doesn't just stop and say, okay, there's chimpanzees and there's gorillas and there's orangutans and there's humanity. 
Darwin is going to get in and saying, no, no, there's all those forms of primates, but then he divides the races of man into almost like subspecies of humanity. And that's where a lot of his ideas get really dangerous. And so Darwin's tone in the second book toward religion, you remember he at the first one, he's like, this shouldn't shock the religious at all. Or, you know, this, all the animals were breathed by God. Well, in the second book, everything changes considerably. So he mocks the Bible and he claims that it would soon shock anyone that a naturalist had ever believed that each individual species was, quote, the work of a separate act of creation. In other words, it'll, the, the, the biblical account that each animal is created according to its kind and, and Genesis 1, that's going to be laughable is what he says. And so he starts like aiming at the Bible. He argued that religions were only created because of primitive man's, quote, reasoning powers remained poorly developed. And so he said, like, we should take a moment every once in a while and consider religions, and that will make us really grateful, right? He said, quote, that will show us what an infinite debt of gratitude we owe to the improvement of our reason, to science, and to our accumulated knowledge. In other words, we'll be able to look back and laugh at religion someday. Now, the church begins to wake up just a little bit, though not a lot. Hmm. And so... So this is kind of like where Darwin's coming from, and what he's saying is humanity is not specially created. Humanity came from the mire, and along the way, these these lower life forms continued to advance and spawned off and branched out, and eventually were just the kind of the random mutation or the advantageous variation of one of those earlier forms but there's nothing special about you. You do not bear the spark of the divine. You are not set apart. You're an animal. And he's very, just very arrogant. Very you know, arrogant. Just arrogance just overflowing from this guy. Yeah, Darwin, you, you pick up on that, particularly in his own writings, his private writings, his second, The Descent of Man. He wrote a lot of books, but the major two were on the origin of species, which is, you know, some of that stuff is like, okay, I, most Christians believe in, in the idea uh, that, you know, part of a species that has an advantage is going to win out and its traits will carry on and reproduce those traits more than the weaker part of it that's going to be exterminated, right? Like, that's just common sense. So what Darwin's books sold millions of copies. Darwin has become the most translated scientist in all of history. On the Origin of Species has been named the most influential academic book ever written. It still sells more than 100,000 copies every year. But what I want to focus on more in this episode is the unintended consequences that those ideas spawned. It's crazy that they still sell 100,000 copies every year. Oh, yeah. Uh, easy. And it's, it's wild. It's, like I said, most translates all over the globe. And so I want to give a warning that Darwin's ideas are, are inherently racist. They're, they're boldly racist and in your face he says some things that after the civil war because remember he writes this his first book in 1859 the civil war is happening in 1861 so they're like right on top of one another and we're put you know the u.s 620,000 people are going to die to end slavery and to start moving toward you know the ideals that america set up for all people right well, Darwin's going to come and he's going to give a scientific justification for racism that is going to be used after the Civil War to hinder the nation from reaching equality. 
And when you see it, it's undeniable that, that it had that impact on the nation. And I want to be fair, Darwin was an abolitionist. Like he wrote about how he did not believe that slavery was good, that it failed to live up to Western ideals of liberty and equality and all those things. So he would tell you, no person shall be enslaved. And yet his writings are going to give the very scientific justification for the dehumanizing of various races throughout the world in the, in the century to come. So the full title of his first book, this is just kind of a fascinating piece, but it gives you an idea into his mindset. Even though he didn't get into humanity much, the first title was On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or, listen to this, The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. So stop for a moment and hear that. There's favored races and the struggle for life. So what do you think those favored races are, Will? The editor was like, no. (laughs) No, Well, not right away. That continued for quite a while. Now you won't see that on the cover of a Darwin book uh, because he's now a hero, right? He's, Mm. he's a protected saint in the new, in the new world we live in. If he, if anybody were to say what the kind of stuff that he said, they would be immediately canceled today. So I want you to hear this and the descent of man, when we're talking about those favored races and everything else in the descent of man, Darwin predicted, listen to this quote at some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. And so uh, Darwin didn't hide from us who he thought those savages were. According to Darwin, the savage races included Africans, Australians, Mongolians, Indians, South Americans, Polynesians, and Eskimos. Who's conveniently not on that list? Darwin. Like, oh, of course, the Europeans, he believed, were, you know, the, the height of everything. He describes that the savage people, all of those different people groups that he just listed as being people of low morality, with insufficient powers of reasoning and a weak power of self-command. He contended that the evolutionary progress of these savage races like the Africans and Australians was somewhere between the baboon and the Caucasian on the evolutionary spectrum. So in other words, like if we all came from a common ancestor, there are some that developed better than others. And so he ranked them and he's like, well, the baboon is the lowest of the primate. And as we work our way up, you know, we go to the gorilla and everything else. Well, he would say that the, the African is on the way up from those and the australian is on the way up and the mongolian is on the way up until you reach the pinnacle of the evolutionary spectrum which is the white man so he proudly wrote that quote western nations of europe now so immeasurably surpass their former savage progenitors and stand at the summit of civilization how do you how was he not canceled in this? <laughs> These because he's a not just how was he not canceled, but how why is he put up on a pedestal? Because he provides the basis upon which the rest of the world can wave goodbye to God. Huh. If if they're you know, I'm I'm speaking in overly dramatic terms, but there's I want you to hear what I'm saying. If he goes down, his theory is harmed. Hmm. Right? makes sense. So so they protect him. And you see that with other people who will do terrible, terrible things. And you're like, why doesn't that person get canceled? Why aren't their statues getting toppled? You know, well, 
because their ideals and their philosophies produce the, the desired outcomes, honestly. And that's I mean, the obvious reason behind it. But you can see clearly. Yeah, he's not hiding anything. Yeah, it's pretty blatant. So now let's let's talk about Darwin's impact on the realm of philosophy. Because I would guess if you jumped in a time machine and you went back and you talked to Darwin, he would be like, "Listen, I'm a biologist. Yeah, you know, I don't want I don't want to weigh in on all the philosophic debates. I don't want to get into political philosophy. Like I'm I'm just I'm giving my biological thoughts. But his theories were massively consequential on the realm of philosophy, regardless of what he intended. So. I want to talk, his idea infused the world with this arrogant confidence. So this is one of the unintended things that is so prevalent now. Prior to Darwin, you had this idea, you know, man was created in the image of God and, and then there was the fall. And after the fall, you know, there's this struggle within all man, that all men are fallen, that, you know, we have a, a sinful and a broken human nature that we've been fighting against from the beginning. Well, Darwin didn't believe in, in the, the fallen nature of man, right? So what does he what he says is every generation of mankind, because if we believe in an evolutionary idea of our history, if every generation of mankind is improving, then what do we think about anything that's old? It's the worst. It's the worst. Like that's that's primitive. That's back when we were closer to the to the gorilla, you know, or whatever. And so anything old is viewed with suspicion and everything new must be the best. And so when you look back at something like, well, let's say the Bible that was written by men 2000 years ago, well, that's back when they were primitive and they needed religion. And now we're so much more enlightened and we're way better and, and we're evolving and we're improving. And well, those guys who wrote the constitution or whatever, like you look back and you say, but we've become better because we have better technology and, and better science. And so we think we're improving as a species and even to, to, to this day where you look at the ethics of your grandparents or something and you're like, oh, how could they believe that? We're so much better than them now. And there's, you lose humility of recognizing that the ancients were pretty wise. Mm -hmm. You know, that throughout time, people have come across wisdom that has been perfected and fine-tuned, you know, that, that philosophers and really wise sages have come up with. But now the modern ethic is it's old. So it's got to be bad. Let's move on to something new. So that's that's one of the consequences that, that has hit philosophy from this evolutionary view. And traditionally, cultures revered the wise sages of the prior generations. That mindset's totally gone. That's what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, which I love. That's like, good. You're, we look back at everything that was before us and we think, oh, we're so much better than them now. And it's pretty gross. Like we think we're inherently superior to anything old or ancient. We don't learn from past generations. We don't learn from our elders. And it's pretty gross to me. So with that, like I said, the wisdom of the Bible, ancient philosophers, Roman, Greeks, the founders, uh, even some of the voices from the Enlightenment, it's like they're outdated. Oh, that was back from when humanity enslaved everyone. So we can't listen to them because they did primitive things. So by definition, it's a revolutionary shift, um, but it's not the worst contribution of Darwin to philosophy. So Darwin's theories offered mankind an excuse to shrug off any notion of biblical absolutes and morality. And you could see how that happens, right? Yeah. If the Bible's not, if, I mean, if, if Darwin is proving that the Bible can't be trusted and that we all just emerged from you know, lower organisms and there is no God, well then... <laughs> 
then everything's out the window. If there's no divine source of the moral law, then morality itself becomes just an invention of society, right? If man invented God, then man also invented God's morals. And so as Dostoevsky put it, and Brothers Karamazov, I love this quote because it's just, it's just spot on. He says, without God, all things are permitted. Like, who's to say it's wrong? What higher voice says it's wrong? I mean, I guess it's just morality just becomes whoever's the strongest, right? That's Darwin's model, survival of the fittest. Whoever, whoever has the most power or the, most, the greatest ability to adapt or persuade society to fit him, it's going to be him that determines the ethics, right? And so that becomes this really scary shift in, in morality where, like, you think back to Machiavelli where he's like, do whatever it takes for the end result. Well, Darwinian biology tells us, like, do whatever you have to do to survive. It's kind of the survival of the fittest. That's what's going to determine all the ethics. And so all of ethics boils down to this raw struggle for survival, as Darwin put it. And that's going to go well. Yeah, that's going to go real That's well. what we're looking for. Yeah, I mean, it's totally predictable where this is ultimately going to go. So just a decade after Darwin writes Descent of Man, you have an atheistic German philosopher who's probably one of the most famous philosophers, particularly of modernity, Frederick Nietzsche. You've, you've, yes. Everybody's heard of Nietzsche. So he points out the obvious when he's, when he's writing to Darwin, because Darwin's running around you know, claiming all these moral positions, you know, abolition, we should fight against this and human rights and all that stuff. And, and Nietzsche points out the obvious, and he says, hold on a minute, quote, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. Like, you don't get to argue from a position that Christianity's true ethically if you believe that Christianity's untrue in reality. Like, on what basis do you even have morals anymore? And so Nietzsche advanced this philosophy. Now, hear this because this becomes tremendously important in the next century. He advances this philosophy that power should be exalted above all else. Like Nietzsche didn't care about ethics. He didn't care about right and wrong. He didn't care if he hurt your feelings. Like it was whatever you had to do to gain power and influence. And that is what you should do. If it gives you an advantage, seize it. Like compassion or charity is just stupid. Seize power. I mean, that's Nietzsche in a nutshell. But he criticizes Darwin for being inconsistent in his application. So it, like he's asking, you know, how does Darwin undermine Christianity and judge society by Christian standards at the same time? Because if he truly believed that the savages were inferior creatures to be exterminated, then why pretend like they're entitled to dignity or protection? Mm. Like, how do you argue that out of both sides of your mouth? So Darwin assured people that mankind is different and superior over any mere creature of nature. So while he's telling us that we're all animals, he's also saying, but yeah, we're, we're different. We're, we're definitely different. We're not just mere creatures of nature. And so listen to what Nietzsche asks. He says, but whence sounds this imperative? In other words, where do, you, where do you get your morals from? Like, how can you tell us that we're superior? How can you tell us that we have an ethic or whatever? Like, where do you get this from if there's no God? He goes on and he says, how can man possess it in himself? Since according to Darwin, he is precisely a creature of nature and nothing else. 
And he has evolved to the height of being a man precisely, in fact, by always forgetting that other creatures possessed equivalent rights. In other words, all your ancestors that led you on the biological evolutionary track to where you are, they got there by decimating everyone else around them, by exerting power, by killing them off so that they could take the the pole position in the evolutionary progress. And he says, and precisely by feeling the stronger and gradually eliminating the other weaker examples of his species. And you're like, yes, like spot on mic drop. Uh, how can you, how can you claim that we got to care for everyone else around us? If you're saying the basis of our existence is that prior generations of our ancestors wiped everything else out to become the strongest and to persist and it, and continue their existence. Make sense. Yeah. Do you see where this is going? I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> because like just a little bit of foresight and you're like, this is, this is really not going to end well. So now you have Darwin who's saying we're animals and not, not just animals, but the various races are like in strata. So you have the white guy, the Caucasian who's at the very top and you have the African and the Jew and all these other, you know, races that are down at the bottom. And then you have mock, then you have Nietzsche coming along and saying, hold on a minute. Like, well then why not just stomp them out? You know, seize power and do it. Advance evolution. Like, why are we staying weak by allowing these people to exist? And he comes up with the idea of the ubermunch, the Superman, the the morally superior white guy. And so in his book, Mein Kampf, see if this sounds familiar. Adolf Hitler writes, a stronger race will supplant the weaker since the drive for life in its final form will decimate every ridiculous fetter of the so-called humaneness of individuals in order to make place for the humaneness of nature, which destroys the weak to make a place for the strong. I wonder where he got that idea. Where do you, where do you think he got that idea, Will? Yeah, Darwin had no idea what he was doing. No, I, I mean, just wicked. If this is If this is the reality behind the world, then... What what makes this ethic wrong? Why not decimate the weak? Yeah. Why allow people with genetic defects to live? They're just polluting the gene pool. If there's if they don't bear the spark of the divine, if they're not entitled to human rights, if there's not something outside of mere opinions of men that make humanity valuable and precious, why not stomp out the weak? I mean, that's what Nietzsche's asking. At least Nietzsche's being honest about it. Oh, he's <laughs> brutally honest and recognizing, hey, this is what we believe and I'm good with it. Yeah. Like, let's just go do it. And so in his table talk discussion, so this is like Hitler's, you know, sitting around the campfire kind of talks to Germany. He mocks Christians for the notion of charity and compassion for the weakest people among us. He's like, you're just, you're, you're making it worse. You're allowing the weak to stay here. You're allowing the, the racially deficient and savage people continue to exist and he claimed that it stood contrary to Darwinist principles. Listen to what he says. So this is right out of his table talk. He says, war, because so, he's, he's ramping up. Like, he's ready to go. He wants world conquest. He's going to bring the superior Aryan race to bear on the world and claim its rightful place as the leaders of the world, right? And he says, war is nothing but a struggle for the riches of nature. By virtue of an inherent law, these riches belong to him who conquers them. That's in accordance with the laws of nature. By means of the struggle, the elites are continually renewed. 
the law of selection, he's talking about natural selection there, the law of natural selection justifies the incessant struggle by allowing the survival of the fittest. Christianity is a rebellion against the natural law, a protest against nature, and taken to its logical extreme, Christianity would mean the systematic cultivation of the human failure. Do you get what he's saying there? Yeah. If we take care of the poor and the weak and the genetically defective and the the least fortunate people on society, we're just advancing their weak genetics to pollute the human race and we should wipe them out. And war is the way to do that. You know what the German people said? Let's do it. I mean, it was wild. Think about this. So, So this is going on in the 1930s, less than a century after Darwin. 60 years after the descent of man, and this is already wreaking havoc on the world. In one of Hitler's Nazi propaganda films, the narrator says this, mankind has sinned terribly against the law of natural selection. We haven't just maintained life unworthy of life. We have even allowed it to multiply. How are you feeling about this, Will? They're gross. Really gross. But again... Strip God out of society. Strip the image of God off of people. You you boil everything down to just biological basics, and and there is no morality. There is no afterlife. There is no soul. There is nothing divine or supernatural. Your mind can really drift into gross places where you say, for the good of humanity, we should eliminate the weaker parts of the gene pool. This was rampant all over the place. So when Hitler, pacifists would come along and they would say, you know, they would object to his warmongering or his plans to, 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 to bring domination to the world. And so Hitler is forced to confront these pacifists and just his logic and the way that he does that is incredible. He urges them to consider their own biological ancestors in this struggle for the evolution who had to destroy other creatures to climb the evolutionary ladder. He said, you, to the pacifist, you are are the product of this struggle. If your ancestors had not fought, today you'd be an animal. They did not gain their rights through peaceful debates with wild animals. The earth has been acquired on the basis of the right of the stronger. That's Nietzsche. That's Darwin, wrapped up into one. These two ideas come out, and Hitler grabs hold of both of them and says this is the justification for a massive Holocaust. We are going to wipe out entire races of people and categories of people that are deemed genetically inferior. Wicked. Wicked to the bone. And so here's here's perhaps the more surprising part. This hit America before it manifested in the Holocaust that happened in Germany. So even before the Holocaust, the evils of Darwinism came to America and proponents of Darwin began scheming for a way to steer human evolution, right? So like if, if we're slowing down evolution by allowing weaker genetics to be in the, the gene pool, well, let's just get rid of entire classes of people from the gene pool. And so Western Europe and America, you know, they weren't interested in going about and, and doing a Holocaust as boldly as Hitler would because Hitler was influenced by Nietzsche. And he's like, all right, power. If I've got the power, I'm going to do it. And, and the West, we were a little bit more nuanced with our evil. And so this produced the scientific practice of what's called eugenics. And this is 
morally, it's just as disgusting. Eugenics is all about restricting the rights of the undesirables to have children. And so the advocates of eugenics adopt the motto. In fact, if you go back and you look at all their congresses, con- conventions, and everything else, they'll have logos that say eugenics is the self-direction of human evolution, right? We're going to get rid of the weaker races. We're going to get rid of these people so that we can create humanity to be just this, this race of thoroughbreds, right? And so the term eugenics, that just means two words in Latin. It means good birth was coined by the founder of eugenics, a, a scientist by the name of Francis Galton. Guess whose cousin he is? No way. Charles Darwin. Whoa. So this is fam. a family affair. His grandfather started writing all this stuff. Now he's got his cousin involved. And so as a cousin, he's writing contemporary to the same period that Darwin is writing, you know, the descent of man and everything else. And he acknowledged, listen to this, because even Darwin talking about the extermination of other races wasn't as chilling as Galton is and and what he says. He says the aim of eugenics was the extinction of inferior races, just straight up. Listen to his writings. He says, There exists a sentiment, for the most part quite unreasonable, against the gradual extinction of an inferior race. So it's like, he's like, I think it's entirely unreasonable that people object to the extinction of these inferior races. Like, we should, like, gross. Are you kidding? But he assured his objectors that it was not immoral if the, quote, if the process of extinction works silently and slowly. And so that's going to be the aim of eugenics. We're going to go and silently and methodically, we're going to go into areas where we find people that are undesirable, that we deem to be lesser creatures, and we're going to start making sure that they're incapable of reproducing. Wildly disgusting. And so... This was not a fringe movement. This is, it sounds like, okay, well, who's going to follow this guy? Like, he's a moron. He's a, he's a crazy man. A lot of people. So in 1912, London hosts the first International Eugenics Congress. It was presided over by Darwin's son. So, like, this is a family affair. And that's, so the fact that Darwin's family is carrying on a campaign to wipe out races is pretty wild. Well, they have to keep the book money coming. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. And by the way, Darwin dies a very wealthy man. In 1921, the second International Eugenics Congress is held in New York at the American Museum of Natural History. So think about this. Eugenics has become so popular and so widely embraced. And think about what this means about what's going on with the soul of America at the time. In 1921, the American Museum of Natural History is like, oh, uh, an organization that's talking about the extinction of racists? Yeah, we want to bring them on. We'll host them. And the, the, the honorary president of this thing is Alexander Graham Bell. Oh, not Alex. Yeah, Come I know. On. I was disappointed to read that. But as you study this movement, you'll find a lot of the very wealthy men that will, are familiar to you pop up in this. And so that same year, 1921, Margaret Sanger comes along and she founds the American Birth Control League. So this is a precursor to Planned Parenthood, which is the largest abortion provider in America to date. And so Sanger wrote that eugenics was a necessary tool to rid the human gene pool of undesirable. So listen to what she says. It's just chilling. Like you think, what happened? Here? Why do they write all this stuff down? Too? I mean, they're, and they're so confident and so bold. They're absolutely convinced of their position because they're absolutely convinced that God is dead. 
that God has no part of society anymore. It was all an illusion, and now it is man is the measure of all things because there is no God, and humanity ha- has to pave its own way. This life is all we get, and so let's forge a better path for humanity by getting rid of those that are lesser than us, right? And, and I guess you want to be in control of that to make sure right? there's not someone out there thinking that you're part of the less than crowd. Yeah. It's it's really gross. You know, this might be a controversial thing to say, but I would contend to say that the the disgusting nature of slavery and the dehumanizing elements of slavery are less appalling to my soul than this. Because this is saying I'm not just going to exploit you. This is saying you're not quite human to me and therefore I'm going to make you extinct. You're not even worthy of life itself. Um, it's it's gross what was taking place. And so Sanger writes, uh, talking about eugenics, she says, it means the release and cultivation of the better racial elements in our society and the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extirpation of defective stocks, those human weeds that threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Human weeds the eventual extirpation of defective stocks. Like this is what's coming out and people are funding her. They're racing to say, yes, this is a great idea. So this woman is going to author dozens of articles for the birth control review titles like the purpose of eugenics, birth control and racial betterment, birth control to create a race of thoroughbreds. So a black activist, Marcus Garvey, accused Sanger of trying to exterminate the black race, right? She'd even launched something that she called the Negro Project, and she recruited a a minister, W.E.B. Du Bois, a prominent black minister in that time, to publicly support her efforts. And so at that time, she's dealing with accusations, you're trying to exterminate black people. And she writes a letter to a guy named Clarence Gamble, and she writes this. She says, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and this minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs. And so using Darwin as a scientific justification for this dystopian evil, America leaped headlong into the eugenic movement. Like, they won. In 1924, Virginia passed a law that allowed judges to forcibly sterilize those that they called, quote, the intellectually disabled. Well, guess who they're gonna throw into that category? This led to the sterilization of a young woman named Carrie Buck. Uh, She had a history of prostitution, as did her mother. Uh, She had a child that was conceived in rape. And so the state of Virginia had passed a law that said that a judge can order you to be forcibly sterilized, which means they come to you, grab you, put you down on a table, and do a surgery on you to, to cut your fallopian tubes so that you may no longer get pregnant. Wow. She sues the state for violating, obviously violating her individual rights. Let's go back to America's founding principles. Remember them? Let's just review them real quick. God, that's gone. Morals, absolutes, gone. Individual rights here, gone. Limited government, my goodness, how this is like just blowing right past any barriers. And so that she sues the state in 1927 in a Supreme Court decision. It was an eight to one vote in the case of Buck v. Bell. The Supreme Court ruled that the state of Virginia was permitted to forcibly sterilize patients in mental hospitals to prevent the state from being, quote, swamped with incompetence. 
And so writing the decision for the court, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes explained, listen to this, it is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. And then he says this famous line, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Do they ever walk this back? So the U.S. Supreme Court has had other cases that have chipped away at the things surrounding this decision, but this specific case has not been overturned. Pretty wild. And so... Tragically, Carrie Buck's story is not an anomaly during this time. According to the University of Michigan, they did a study and they found that more than 60,000 people were sterilized in 32 states in the course of the 20th century. And guess what? Not surprisingly, this included a disproportionate number of black Americans, criminals, people with genetic defects, and the feeble-minded. And so, Forced sterilizations peak in the 1930s and 1940s, and guess what happened that made America go, oof, maybe we shouldn't do this. America starts getting a view of Nazis Nazis, and where this leads. When you take scientific justifications and say the world would be better off without inferior races, this is where it goes. And so it peaked in the 30s and 40s, and uh, those laws remained on the books. And they in California, for instance, a, an outrageous number of these happened in California. And they happened like at the turn of the century, as late as that. Shook. It's wild that these things hit America the same way that they hit the Nazis. And in fact, if you study the eugenics, a lot of our scientists that were pushing eugenics were taking trips over to Germany to share methods and, and the basis of what we were doing with the Nazis back Gosh. in that time. Really, like, it's it just like, oh, come on, America. Like, I hate, I hate giving bad news about America. As you can tell, like, I love our history, but this was, this was a bad look. Darwin, yeah. Darwin did not do good things for us. Definitely played a role in the horrors of Nazis and, and the eugenics program, but it also played a role in the advancement of, a, of an evil that was even more destructive than the Nazis. Communism. Like it, it gave, it gave communism a huge boost. And so um, we're, we're going to jump ahead because we talk about communism in our, in our next episode and how that came about and how that started influencing America. But just as, as a sneak peek in 1917, Vladimir Lenin, he leads the Bolshevik revolution. So he's, he's a big fan of, of communism. He wants to bring communism to the Soviet union, 1917 Bolshevik revolution. And he manages to do it. Now he's an atheist, and he also embraces the Darwinian view of natural history. So, And he was a fan of it, and people knew it. So in 1921, he gets this sculpture as a gift from an American businessman named Armand Hammer. And when he died, this was, this was the sculpture that was on his desk. And it's just it's, it speaks volumes. So the sculpture is an ape, and it's sitting on a pile of books. One of the books has the name Darwin down the spine of the book and the ape is sitting there kind of looks like in the old position of the thinker with one hand under the chin and the other hand like hamlet is holding a human skull Mm. and on the bottom of the book uh, the stack of books there's a book that's lied open and it's quoting genesis 3 the words of the serpent saying you will be like god 
Darwin enabled man to shrug off God and become God himself. I will determine the future of humanity. I will make these things. And Lenin took that and and very much appreciated Darwin. Joseph Stalin, who's going to be the guy who follows up for Lenin, becomes, you know, Lenin killed six million. Stalin comes along and is like, you know, hold my beer. And he kills 20 million of his own people. He was once a seminary student. Uh, and guess why he left seminary and abandoned his faith? Got to be our guy, Darwin. He read Darwin. And he writes, he, he fully admits that. It's in his biographies. He talks about it. Um, and it's just undeniable that Darwin's ideas unleashed this great wave of evil. And, and, it, and it impacted the church so much. And so surprisingly, and contrary to popular belief, I think this is the part that's like, gosh, why, why is this? He, the evangelical church did not initially oppose Darwin's theory with any real passion. Really? Not until you get later on. Initially, they're they're like, hmm, okay. So even the most conservative theologians of the era, so like conservative fundamentalists like James Orr and B.B. Warfield and, and Frederick Wright, when it came out, they claimed that the theory was totally compatible with the Bible. And so it, it's not until you get into the 1900s when the church begins to see the impact that it's having not only on the church, but upon culture and society and those ideas of progressivism and humanity doesn't need God anymore. And we're going to create our own utopia. And, you know, we just used to believe in God because we needed a crutch, but now we have medicines and we have technology and we're, we're going to perfect the human experience. We don't need a hope of heaven. We're going to create it here. And then, you know, they face the evils of world war one and world war two and great genocides and humanity's forced to contend. No, we're not our own saviors. Um, but initially, the church is like, it's it's fine, it's compatible, and it's not until you get to the 20s, really, where the church really begins to fight back against evolution and Darwinism, but by that time, its implications had already gained a foothold in America, and the church just got mowed down, um, and it, it radically changed the nation, and so Darwin's theory caused many people to abandon their reliance upon the Bible, Like, if, and if there's no hope of heaven, and there's no fear of hell, then the materialist view of life, that's all that remains. Like if there is nothing beyond this world, then all we're left with is the materialist world. And you'd better do whatever it takes to ensure that you get as much as you can while you can. And so this materialist view of the world gave our next author that we're going to hit in the next episode a huge boost, Karl Marx, who writes the Communist Manifesto. And it's basically like, this is what the world should look like if there is no God. And this material world is all we have. And so that's what we're going to get into. And so while Charles Darwin is probably the most influential voice of the 19th century that's going to radically change society, the unavoidable implications of his theory paved the way for the second most influential voice, Karl Marx, author of the Communist Manifesto, who credited Darwin for giving him the basis in natural history for our view. That's what he wrote. So all of this, all of these ideas, remember you said one person having such an impact? One person. Think about all the influence this one person had on society. And then he inspires this one person, Karl Marx. And to see the impact that he has on society, join us next time on the Out of Water Podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed your time with us and that you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. Music for this episode included The Epic Hero and Inspiration by Keys of Moon, In Search of Solitude and Permafrost by Scott Buckley, and Guardians of the Fallen by Ghost Drifter. You can learn more about the Out of Water podcast and Rio Vista Church at our website, riovistachurch.com.